found in the 40th chapter of Isaiah. I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles then to Isaiah chapter 40 and hear as we proclaim the Word of God. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she hath received of Jehovah's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one that crieth, Prepare ye in the wilderness the way of Jehovah, make level in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the uneven shall be made level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of Jehovah shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Jehovah hath spoken it. The voice of one saying, Cry. And one said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the breath of Jehovah bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up on a high mountain. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord Jehovah will come as a mighty one, and his arm will rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm and, gather and carry them in his bosom and will gently lead those that have their young. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the spirit of Jehovah or being his counselor hath taught him with whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are accounted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The image a workman hath cast it, and the goldsmith overlayeth it with gold and casteth it for silver, with silver chains. He that is too impoverished for such an oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot, he seeketh unto him a skillful workman to set up a graven image that shall not be moved. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in that bringeth princes to nothing, that maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. 
yea, they have not been planted, yea, they have not been sown, yea, their stock hath not taken root in the earth. Moreover, he bloweth upon them, and they wither, and the whirlwind taketh them away as stubble. To whom then will ye liken me, that I should be equal to him, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and see who hath created these, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and for that he is strong in power, not one is lacking. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from Jehovah, and the justice due to me is passed away from my God? Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? The everlasting God, Jehovah, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint. And to him that hath no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait for Jehovah shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And thus far the reading of God's Word. I almost hesitate to preach on this passage. It, uh, it's so glorious. And how could any human words match the stirring rendition from Isaiah? You remember the movie Chariots of Fire? Eric Liddell, the Presbyterian, committed, godly, devoted Presbyterian young man who God had given legs like no other man at that time, just ran like the wind, as they said. And he was a man who trained and worked hard to glorify God with the gifts he had been given. Wanted eventually to be a missionary. He said, and that day would come, but first God would use his youth to run and bring glory to his name. Eric Liddell made it to the, um, to the Olympics being held in France. And as he went to the Olympics, to his chagrin, found that he was scheduled to run on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. And he knew that that was wrong, that that was a sin like unto adultery, that that was a sin like stealing or murder or anything else. Now, you know very well, living at the end of the 20th century, that our culture does not understand that. Our culture to a certain degree believes murder is wrong of certain sorts, of certain kinds of people in certain circumstances, as long as someone else is hurt. But who's hurt if you don't observe the Lord's Day? Here is Eric Liddell at the beginning of the 20th century, much earlier in the 20th century, but the secularism of our century was, um, was already at work then too, and he could not find people really that would sympathize with this the Olympic Committee, not only that governed the races, but also from Scotland itself, did not think that his religious convictions, which are not just his private choice to follow this idiosyncratic view of living, but was the objective standard of right and wrong revealed by a holy, eternal, and changing God, could not understand why he would have to follow these convictions. Well, Liddell was asked to preach in the church of uh, the Scottish Presbyterian, um, Scottish Presbyterians who were there in France, and you remember in the movie that he chose Isaiah 40 to read. Uh, that may have been the high point of the movie, even more than his, you know, winning. Just to see him preach this with conviction, 
believing at the time that all of his hopes to run in the Olympics had been dashed, he said, Behold your God. And of course, the passage is so appropriate because it ends with these words about God renewing their strength so that they mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. Eric Liddell had found the key of joy and comfort in his personally troubling circumstances. Eric Liddell had found assurance and peace in a short life in an unstable world. He had found the key to sanctification and perseverance as a Christian. He had found the key to strength and renewal when he was weary. And I think Isaiah 40 very appropriately captures what Eric Liddell had his finger on, what he understood so very well, spiritually speaking, which I think we need to understand today before we go home. Isaiah 40 beautifully captures the key for our comfort and for our assurance and for our sanctification and for the renewal of our strength as well. And what is that key? As we look at the 40th chapter of Isaiah, what is the secret to these four things? Comfort, assurance, sanctification, and renewal. Notice in verses 3 to 5, what Isaiah tells us is going to take place. He says, The voice of one that cries, Prepare ye in the wilderness the way of Jehovah. Make level in the desert a highway for our God. Why would a, uh, a road have to be constructed in the desert? For God. As Isaiah says, God is coming. God is going to be present in the midst of his people. God himself will be the one who appears to save his people. In every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven shall be made level, and the rough places a plain. And when everything has been smoothed out for the coming of God, and the glory of Jehovah shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Jehovah hath spoken it. Isaiah says, God is coming. God will be in our midst. Prepare the way of the Lord. And if God is coming, what should the preacher proclaim? Now we know that God has come. These glorious words of Isaiah's prophecy are repeated in the New Testament. It turns out that John the Baptist is the forerunner who prepares in the wilderness the highway for God as he proclaims the way of the Lord and the righteousness of God that men should repent and prepare their hearts and then God's own Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, comes. And the glory of the Lord was revealed to men so that all flesh could see it together. God, the God-man himself, appeared. This is what Isaiah is saying God will do to comfort his people. The Savior is coming, and when he comes, he'll be no less than God himself, Jehovah, the God-man. Now what should the preacher proclaim? Verse 6 says, The voice of one saying, Cry. And one said, What shall I cry? It's a voice from heaven that beckons the preacher and God's people generally as well to cry out. To proclaim. When it says cry here, it doesn't mean cry with weeping and tears. It means to, um, to lift up your voice, to shout, 
What am I to proclaim? What is it that's to be said? And this is all the more difficult because we read that all flesh is as grass. And the goodliness of life, the beauty of life, the pleasures about us, and things that, that seem so wonderful pass away so quickly. What shall I preach in the midst of a short life, in a life that's unstable and insecure? What is it that is to be proclaimed? God calls the preacher in verse 9 to an enthusiastic and a forceful proclamation. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up on a high mountain. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. This is to be something that is proclaimed with enthusiasm. It's something to be proclaimed forcefully, boldly. This is the key to living your life in an unstable world. This is the key to the glory of God which is going to come and worshiping him properly. This proclamation of God's presence is to be widespread. Not only get up on a mountain so you can call out to the people, get up to a high mountain that you might get the word out broadly. And the manner of that proclamation, Isaiah says, is to be confident and strong Lift up your voice. And it said again, lift up your voice. And I realize if that's all the preacher ever does is lift up his voice, we can kind of feel like, you know, in, in so pushed back by it that it's hard to listen. But there have got to be times, as Isaiah says, when we do lift our voice and get the attention of the people and with boldness and enthusiasm tell them, I've got a message you must hear. And what should be proclaimed as the good tidings? O thou that tellest good tidings in Zion, get thee up on a high mountain. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with strength. I've got glad tidings. I've got something that's going to make you happy. I'm afraid often uh, we who are preachers can get a reputation for being able to raise our voices and pound the pulpit when we're proclaiming very bad tidings when we're really indignant. There's a place for indignation in an unrighteous world. I understand that. But we preach against sin. We raise our voices. But do we raise our voices when we have good news, happy news? I'm excited. The Presbyterians have said, that sounds kind of charismatic, Dr. Bonson. Better back off there a bit. No, I'm excited. The preacher gets up on the mountain. He says, I want you to hear this. And what does he want you to hear? It's very simple. Now, a lot can be said in elaboration. A lot can be said to unpack the message. But it all comes down to this. If you want the key, if you want it just in one little concentrated drop, behold your God. Behold your God. Think about who your God is. That's how Eric Waddell had such a consistent testimony. That's how Eric Waddell led a godly life. That's how Eric Waddell was not bitter because of his circumstances. And he was able to move through them and to be blessed of God in the process because he knew the message of Isaiah 40. Lift up your voice, the preacher is told. Tell the people. God says, behold who I am. Think about me. Make me the center of your life. Make me the context for your consideration of all that you're doing and feeling and all the decisions you're to make. Reflect upon who God is. 
I might put it to you very simply, kind of paraphrase this. Don't forget that there's a hidden dimension to your life. The problem that I have, the problem that I've had this week with just a new kind of antagonism and, and hostility that I've had to face in my ministry, the problem that I've gone through struggling with depression and confusion and weariness and all the rest, and the rest of you as well, the problem that we have when we go through hard times, the problem that we have when we go through morally tempting times, the problem we have is that we let the visible world around us be what we take account of. And don't remember the invisible world, and not just the invisible world, but very personally, the invisible creator of heaven and earth who is here, present, with us, controlling all things. You see, we often have the focus of our thoughts on the wrong thing. We look at circumstances that are observable rather than the controlling circumstance which can't be seen. That is, we don't let the most important factor control our feelings. I don't know why I say that, put it out to you. I don't. I forget to behold my God. You know, the message of the book of Revelation is very much like this, it seems to me. I, I see a parallel here that I want to share with you. The book of Revelation was written to a church in utter adversity. A church that was being persecuted not only by the Jews, but by the Gentile world as well. A church that was being economically oppressed. A church that was being not only ridiculed, but the people in the church were being beat up. They were being arrested. Some were being martyred in the most gruesome ways. And if you were there at that time and you were to predict what the future of this little band of measly religious zealots, what their future would be, I don't think anybody, humanly speaking, could have thought there'd be a future to this group. I mean, they're outnumbered economically, they're outnumbered militarily, they're outnumbered numerically. They do not have any political strength. There is nothing going for this group. And so John is given a revelation, literally a revelation, an apocalypsis in Greek. The curtain is pulled back so that he can see what's really going on. This is all introduced for us in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And messages are given to the seven churches. And then we come to chapter 4, where John finally is going to behold the things that are yet to come. He's now going to get a picture of the future and what lies behind everything. The curtain is drawn back. Why don't you look at that with me for a minute here. Revelation chapter 4, the first three verses. And what is it a persecuted church needs to be told? What is it that John needs to see so that he can encourage his brothers as they struggle in this world? After these things I saw, and behold, a door opened in heaven, and the first voice that I heard, a voice as of a trumpet speaking with me, one saying, Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must come to pass hereafter. Straightway I was in the Spirit. Okay, now just stop for a minute. Understand, John sees a door opened in heaven. I don't know what that would be like. Certain artists through the centuries have tried to portray that, Durer and others. But somehow he's looking up in the sky, and the heavens are opened for him. And a voice says, come up. Well, I'll tell you, that's quite an experience in itself. Come up, and I'll show you the things that are going to happen hereafter. And what would you expect to see? I'm afraid that if 
the book of Revelation is the Bible written from the perspective and the attitude of most evangelicals, most believers today. You would expect, we just let's get into the newsreel. Let's find out what's going to happen. Let's get some prophecy going here. But that isn't what John needed to see if he's going to understand the future. So let's read on. Immediately I was in the Spirit, behold, there was a... Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, there was a throne set in heaven. The first thing John saw was the throne of God. And he's taken with that. You want to understand what's going to happen in the future? You want to understand why the church is going to survive, John? Behold, the throne of God. And then he goes on to talk about one who sat on it who was bedazzling. What did the church need to know first of all? What did the church need to know foremost of all? The church needed to behold God. Who is this one we worship? Who is this one we follow? Sometimes the heaven has to be opened and the curtain drawn back so we can see that there is a controlling power in this universe, a personal power that's so easy to forget and not take account of because we're so tied to the here and now and to the things we can touch. Behold your God. This was Isaiah's message as well. He goes on to tell us a lot about it. But the first and foremost thing is that the preacher should tell people, look at God. Look away from yourself. Look away from the world and look at God. And meditate on God. Remember who he is and what he is like so that you put everything in your life, your cares, and your fears and your moral temptations and your bitterness and your weariness so that you put everything in your life in the mental context of who God is and what he is like. Do we practice that? We talk about it sometimes. We don't talk about it enough. The preacher should proclaim loudly, enthusiastically, widely behold God remember God don't forget who God is you see when I get down in the mouth because things are going hard in my life or people have not been nice to me or I get weary of what I'm supposed to be doing or when I get tempted to to think evil thoughts or uh, to do things which are not appropriate for a Christian who's trying to follow Jesus Christ what I need to hear is for people to say to me remember God there are all these reasons why you may be bitter, why you may be tempted, why you may be down, why you may be weary, but remember God. That little message in itself, you see, will grow up into righteousness and strength and renewal in my life and in yours as well. So what's the key that Isaiah gives us? Behold your God. Secondly, who is this God that we behold according to Isaiah 40? Verses 10 and 11 tell us he is a mighty ruler who will bring recompense and reward as well as deal compassionately. Behold, the Lord Jehovah will come as a mighty one, as one with strength, and his arm will rule for him. Nothing will keep him from accomplishing his purposes. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Do I believe that nothing can keep God from doing what he wants to do? Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will deal fairly and justly. He will reward those who are to be rewarded. He will give recompense to those who are wicked. 
Do I really believe that? Or do I believe that God is like so many policemen in our culture and so many judges and like so many fathers and so many mothers who say that they're going to do what is right and be fair and, and mete out justice, but then they don't. And so we, we despair of whether we can get justice in this world. We sometimes despair if we can get justice in the courts of the church in this world. Is God like that? He will come as a mighty one. He'll rule with his mighty arm, and he'll bring reward and recompense. But he's not just a God of justice. He's a God of compassion, who will feed his flock like a shepherd, gather the lambs in his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who have their young. Think about this God. He's mighty. He's just. He's compassionate. In verses 12 to 17, Isaiah says, the God we behold is a great God. I love this description. He asks rhetorical questions. Who is it that's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? It's beyond our comprehension how big God is. If you took all the oceans of the world and all of the rivers and all of the lakes, God holds them just in the hollow of his hand. God picks up the mountains and puts them in the scales to weigh them. What is this earth before God? It's overwhelming to us. It's frightening to us. Tim's had to endure some of, you know, the earth in the last couple of weeks in his life. We know, that, you know, the wilderness or being alone at sea and so forth it can be so dangerous to God just holds it in his hand. Every bit of it. But all of the typhoons and all of the earthquakes and all of the blazing hot sun and all of the icy cold of the north, every bit of it is nothing to God. In verse 13, Isaiah says, and who has directed the spirit of Jehovah, being his counselor, has taught him? Who thinks they can teach God anything? Anything. Well, I'm a fool. I think I can teach God things. I figure out things are not going right in my life, and I start saying, God, don't you understand? We need to do this, 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 and this. God doesn't need my counsel. He doesn't need my advice. He doesn't even need the information I can bring him. It's not like I have to, you know, knock, 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 say, God... Did you forget that something's going on down here? Are you not watching? Who needs to counsel God? Who needs to advise God? The rhetorical question is to be answered, no. God knows everything. With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Did anyone instruct God? When God made this world, did he have to go consult with anybody? Not at all. When God devised what is justice for us, what is right and what is wrong, did God have to say, well, I need some help here, somebody counseling? Not at all. He is sufficient to himself. He holds the whole world in the palm of his hand. No one can tell him something that he doesn't know and that he didn't bring about. No one can instruct him in what is right and wrong because no one knows his holy character better than he does. Verse 15, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket, 
and are accounted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he takes up the islands as a very little thing. <laughs> the Japanese, many of you may know, um, many years ago in their, uh, in their past, thought of the Japanese islands as the center of you know, the created order and the universe. And um, though there are other islands we could use in, as an illustration, just imagine this. God takes up the islands. You may think it's a big deal. God just, it's a very little thing. Him to take them up like that. What are all the nations? I want you to think about the United Nations there in New York City. All this pomp and circumstance and authority, all this military might and principle, potential there. All of this authority and power. And what are all the nations? What is the United Nations to God? Is that the massive edifice with all these flags round about, so forth, all standing all of it, a drop in the bucket? And God doesn't even say it's half the bucket. It's not even a cup of water in the whole bucket. For him, it's a drop in the bucket. All of the earth and all of the potentates of the earth and all of the rulers and all the military might is to God And then Isaiah says, verse 16, In Lebanon it's not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. If you were really going to bring an offering to God that would be sufficient in its scope and magnitude, if we took Lebanon, of course, Lebanon in that day was the grandest um, forest area, most beautiful forest area. Um, for our purposes, we might think of the high Sierras. If you were going to bring a burnt sacrifice to God, you bring some bull or some other animal like that. Now Isaiah says, if you took all of the animals of the forest and you set the entire forest of Lebanon on fire and consumed them all, that would not be a sufficient burnt offering to God. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and vanity. God doesn't just say, you are zero to me, you are minus to me. Less than zero. Less than nothing. What's wrong with me then? If the God who has come to be present in my world and in my life has come with such a mighty arm that he considered, he can weigh the mountains in a scale, he can put all the waters of the earth in the hollow in his hand, and all the nations are not even a drop in the bucket. In fact, they are less than nothing before him. And this is the God that I worship and who protects me and holds me to his bosom like a lamb. Why then do I care about the political opposition of one nation or of one state or of one neighborhood or of one individual? Behold your God. Isaiah speaks of the greatness of God in what we just looked at. In verses 18 to 26, he speaks of the incomparable greatness of God. He goes on to say, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare unto him? The point here being, if you knew how great God was, you'd never be tempted to be an idolater. You'd never be tempted to make a graven image. How could any graven image do justice to God? I mean, the thought of it is ludicrous. It's preposterous. It's ruled out in advance. It's not a reductio ad absurdum. It's beginning with absurdity to think you could start along the line that anything could be made that would be comparable to God. 
verse 21. Haven't you known? Haven't you heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Don't you understand from the foundations of the earth? Now listen to this description. It is he that sits above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. What do you do when a grasshopper gets in your way? And some of you may call for your husbands. I don't know. But I'll, I'll tell you this. When the person who's going to deal with the grasshopper deals with the grasshopper, he doesn't, you know, quiver in front of the grasshopper. Picks it up and throws it outside or crushes it underfoot. And that's the end of it. God sits above the circle of the earth. Think of that famous etching by Durer that has the picture of the Lord Jesus stand, um, sitting enthroned above the circle, the half circle of the earth, and a curtain behind him and grasshoppers. That's taken from Isaiah 40. It's he that sits above the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens as a curtain, spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. And he brings the princes to nothing and makes the judges of the earth vanity. Yes, they have not been planted, sown, their stock has not taken root in the earth. God just blows upon them and they wither and the whirlwind takes them away as stubble. God just exhales once. And all the princes and the kings and the judges with all their pomp and power and circumstance, they're gone. God wanted to get rid of those who oppose us individually or corporately. If God wanted to get rid of an entire nation, if he wanted to get rid of all of the rulers and judges of the earth, he would simply exhale once and it'd be gone. Are you getting some idea how great this God is? To whom then, verse 25 says, will you liken me that I should be equal to him, saith the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these and brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. On a good night here in Orange County, you can see many stars. But if you go out to the mountains where it's darker and so forth and clearer atmosphere, I mean, you've had that experience, haven't you? Those of us who are city dwellers, we kind of forget about that. That's incredible. You begin to wonder, how is there any room for black spots up there because there's just so many stars filling the sky? Isaiah says God calls them all by name. He's the one who brought them out by number. He knows each and every one of them and controls them. That's how great he is. Verse 28 tells us, Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, Jehovah, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. And so Isaiah kind of brings us together and he says, He is everlasting, he is the creator, and he has unlimited knowledge. He knows everything. You cannot instruct him. He's the creator. The earth is like in the hollow of his hand. And he's everlasting, eternal. Nothing will wear him down. He'll always be here. There's no question about his faithfulness or his ability to accomplish what he wants to do. And so what should be the result of our reflection? If the key is, behold your God, and two, the God that we behold is so great, so incomparably great, then what will be the result if we reflect on God? Let me just end with these four things, which I mentioned in the case of Eric Liddell as well. One, we're going to find joy and comfort in our personally troubling circumstances. Notice how Isaiah 40 begins. Comfort ye my people, saith God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. 
verse 11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd and gather the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom. If you'll remember who God is, then we'll find the key to comfort. Then we'll find the key to peace and joy, regardless of what we're going through. God says, be comforted. Remember who I am. I'm holding you to my bosom. I'm not going to let you go. Do you believe that? And if you do, what are you so worried about? Why are you getting so depressed? Secondly, this is the key to assurance and peace in a short life in an unstable world. Verses 6 to 8. All flesh is as grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. What's lasting in this world? Well, I'll tell you. In my life, I had reason to wonder, what's lasting? Is marriage lasting? Church relations lasting? Is health lasting? Is money lasting? What do you got when all said and done? Human life is just poof, it's gone. You know, it's kind of like the spring flowers that you see along a desert road. Right now, you can go out and see them. They look beautiful. Go back in two weeks. They're dead. They're gone. That's human life. It comes up. It has a moment of flourishing. It's gone. And you know how many flowers there have been who have lived in this world? What do you amount to? What do I amount to? Given the thousands, no, the millions, the billions of people who have lived on the face of the earth since its creation. What is human life? And what is reliable? What is stable? What can you hold on to? Isaiah tells you, the word of the Lord. Because you know, the word that I'm preaching from today is so amazing to me. This word was preached 200 years ago. This word was preached 500 years ago. And it was preached 1,000 years ago. And it was being preached 2,000 years ago. And it was being preached 3,000 years ago. And the God who revealed this word is here from eternity past and will be here to eternity future. The word of the Lord abides forever. So when you think about how fleeting and how passing and in a sense how insignificant your life is, what does it all amount? You know, what's it all about, Alfie, right? When that question comes up in your life, and everyone has that moment for some of us over and over again, when that moment comes up, the answer is the word of the Lord is what it's all about. Thirdly, if we'll remember who our God is, we'll find the key to sanctification and perseverance. Remember this polemic about the insecurity and shortness of life. Then live by the word of God, not by your own lights. Remember the polemic against idolatry, how ridiculous it is to try to make some idol in the place of following God. All sin is a form of idolatry. Think about the polemic here in Isaiah 40 against the rulers whom God blows away with the breath of his mouth. Remember in verse 10 that when God comes, he comes with recompense and reward. He will weigh out our deeds. And in verse 27, this verse I just want to emphasize for a few moments here. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from Jehovah, and the justice due to me is passed away from my God? Isaiah says, why are you asking that question? Do you know who God is? Why are you asking, why is God making me go through this? Why isn't God giving me the justice that is due to me? Why doesn't he arise and take care of those who are oppressing why doesn't God deal with the wicked of this world? And then we start thinking of God like earthly fathers and earthly judges and, and policemen and so forth. 
who talk a good line, but they don't follow through. And so we think, well, God doesn't follow through either. Isaiah says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hid from God? Why do you, th you think God has forgotten? You don't think God sees? So the key to persevering through times when you would be bitter because of injustice, the key to persevering when you are tempted to become an idolater, to not follow God purely, and to be like the judges and kings of this earth who are going to be blown away by God because they have transgressed his commandments. The key is to remember who God is. Why can't you engage in backbiting? Why can't you be dishonest? Why can't you lust? Why can't you do what the world does? Behold your God. And fourthly, and finally, Isaiah says this is the key to strength and renewal when we are weary. Verse 29, He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait for Jehovah shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. If you remember who God is, that's going to give you a great deal of strength. I told you this last week was not an easy one for me emotionally and spiritually. But when I was strong, I know why I was strong. I look back at it now and I can just tell you empirically through personal observation and experience. Isaiah's example right. When I thought about God, everything was okay. Then I was renewed. Then I was refreshed. Then like an eagle, I could mount up and soar. And the minute I start thinking about me and my problems and does God really care, <coughs> right down to the earth again. I, um, I think probably more than other people, it's hard for me to look at those who have strong bodies and, and uh, see how they can persevere playing in a basketball game like my son John can or doing the kinds of really grueling things that, that Tim goes through and so forth. God hasn't granted me a body that will do that. I've had a couple of open heart surgeries, I've had stomach surgery, I've had high blood pressure, and on and on, flat feet, everything. My body just doesn't do the sorts of things other people's bodies will do. But you know what? In the Lord, I've got something better than they've got. I trust they've got it too. Because even the youths will be weary, Isaiah says. But those who trust Jehovah will have their strength renewed over and over again. And even though they are old men, they will be like humans, able to run the race that is before them and the power God has given. Behold your God. It's the key to joy in trouble. It's the key to assurance in an unstable world. It's the key to sanctification. And it's the key to renewed strength. Let me end by just pointing to the fact that medieval theology made the focus of Christian piety what was called the beatific vision. The beatific vision is the vision that would be given, that most beautiful supreme vision that would be given of God when the saint passes into heaven. When those who belong to God are ushered into his holy presence and allowed finally to behold him face to face in all of his grandeur, and all of his grace. Such a vision would be so overwhelming, such a consummation of wonder and joy and awe that it could not take place until after a life of preparation, a life of anticipation, 
and in many cases a life of mystical contemplation. But in reality, the beatific vision doesn't begin later, it begins today, in this life, in the here and now. And it's this beatific vision of who God is that's the key to the believer's comfort and assurance and sanctification and constant renewal. The word of the preacher, the glad tidings to his congregation is simply this. Behold your God. Let's pray. God, we ask you to forgive us because we've forgotten who you are. You taught us so repeatedly and so plainly. And often enough, we profess it with our, with our words. And yet from the heart, we have really forgotten who you are. And so we compromise and confuse because we've forgotten who you are. Oh God, help us to see you today. Now we thank you that you have helped our, our weak and feeble faith by, by sending your own Son into this world that the glory of Jehovah would be seen by all mankind. How we thank you that you've helped us in our weakness by showing yourself in human form Lord Jesus, pray that you would help us to keep our minds on you, our mediator, our savior, our comfort, our strength. Help us to behold you in all of your wonder and grace, and from such reflection and beholding to gather strength and encouragement that we would serve you, that we would glorify you, and indeed enjoy you forever. We pray in your blessed name. Amen.